Trumpism is not populism. Democracy, real democracy, that's populism. Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. When you hear the word populism, what do you think of? I bet if it means anything to you, it's not positive. You may think of Trump or Hungary's Viktor Orban or Brazil's Bolsonaro, neo-fascist authoritarians who have no use for democracy and, in fact, want to squash it. But what's really amazing is how people like this have stolen the word populism and twisted it completely from what it really is. These are pretend populists. As our guest today, Steve Babson, writes in his essay on the History News Network, the way populism is typically invoked in today's media, you wouldn't know that the word comes down to us from one of America's most successful progressive movements, the grassroots crusade that resisted corporate power and fought to save democracy 130 years ago. End of quote. Well, being an amateur historian myself, I would suggest that traditional American populism is even older than that. After the War of Independence, the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions were all about farmers and yeomen being angry and determined that it is not the debtors, them, who should be taxed to pay for the war, but their creditors, who, after all, lent the money in the first place. So the question was then and is now and remains, who should the government of America work for? That's the question raised rather loudly at times by the populists. and They wanted to work for the people. The name of this show, of course, is Keeping Democracy Alive, and that's what it's about, democracy, not plutocracy, not autocracy, not oligarchy. Populism is so terribly and intentionally misunderstood, it's really time to take back the mantle. Bernie Sanders is a true populist, as was a name you've, you've heard of but probably know little about, William Jennings Bryan. And there was my candidate for president back in 1976, Oklahoma's senator who campaigned on a theme of populism, Fred Harris. Huey Long is another somewhat recognized name from the past and fighting Bob La Follette. Little known what my second grade teacher would have called them unsung heroes, great, courageous Americans who bravely stood up for economic justice of whom we should be proud. They're the real populists. So what is this populism? Our guest today writes, we need a refresher on populism's history. That's what we're going to have some fun doing. And that the elites who tar their critics in the U.S. with the sly pejorative of populist count on our collective amnesia. They'd rather the real populists remain forgotten along with the potential they represented and still represent. And let's keep in mind the authoritarians, the anti-democrats, depend for their power on successfully erasing history. Ooh, is that ever important? And it's terrible. Many of us are determined not to let them get away with erasing history, including our guest today, Steve Babson, who's a labor educator, union activist, and history PhD living and working in Detroit. He's the author of the just-published Forgotten Populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. Steve Babson, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. 
Well, uh, as you write, in today's ahistorical babble, you rarely hear mention of the men and women who organized a multiracial resistance to the first corporate oligarchs. End of quote. So who were, what was the populist party, the People's Party, in the 1890s? Well, it was a, a coalition, uh, a movement of farmers and coal miners and railroad workers, uh, knights of labor, uh, women suffragists, black sharecroppers, rural ministers, school teachers. Uh, it was really a movement that, in a way, I think stands at the headwaters of modern progressive politics in the United States. And so erasing it from history, as many contemporary pundits are inclined to do, uh, makes progressive ideas seem somehow artificial, uh, as if imported from some un-American realm. And what I want to stress uh -huh. is that the populist movement is really uh, at the center of American culture and po politics and represents an important part of our history that really shouldn't be set aside. Interesting. Yeah, making it, uh, you know, and for so long it's been about us versus them, you know, fighting the other. And to, as you just mentioned, you know, bringing up the populace as the other imported from somewhere else, not from here. It's it's, right. it's the lie. <laughs> it's just a lie. And Right. No, absolutely. The populace saw themselves as really the embodiment of what it meant to be an American. Right. Uh, not the new rich and the, the newly emerging class of robber barons uh, yeah. who appeared in American politics and the economy after the Civil War. And talk about after the Civil War, where everything changed after that. What, the 1890s uh, are often referred to as the Gilded Age. What, what about that era? What was it that earned the moniker the Gilded Age? Well, it's, uh, it was the gross inequality of income uh, and wealth uh, simultaneously with the sort of dazzling opulence of the mega rich. And so uh, it was actually Mark Twain wrote a, a novel uh, that captured some of the culture uh, and the specifics of this, that world. Uh, and it was a, then a term applied broadly, meaning that it was an age in which that apparent prosperity of the super rich was a, a thin coating of guild, golden guild, covering the gross inequality oh. uh, that was characteristic of that age, and that grew worse uh, over time. And that's really what the populists were, were reacting against, was this extraordinary uh, inequality of income and wealth and power that was subverting, as they saw it, and I think accurately, yes. uh, subverting uh, democracy. Uh, in the years after the Civil War. And when you talk about gilded, covering things up, that's exactly what Donald Trump does. I mean, whatever, I, I have not been inside his residence in Manhattan, huh, oddly enough, but uh, everything is gilded. Everything is gilded. It's all pretend. And he claims to, you know, he it's like as if that were a great thing to be a billionaire, you know, and everybody else, you know, oh, we want to be just like that. Interesting. Gilded. Yeah, I guess uh, so. It goes on and on and on. What, do you think, and I, I did want to ask about the 18th century stuff, the Shays Rebellion and Whiskey Rebellions. Does that, can, can American populism trace its roots to those rebellions? Well, in a way, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it was a different context. You're talking about uh, the uprisings of debtors and poor farmers 
uh, in the 1780s and then uh, 1790s. Uh, and they were reacting against a very specific context of post-revolutionary politics. So this was really a pre-industrial age, and so quite different from what uh -huh. the populists were dealing with, you know, 80, 90 years later, uh, where they were dealing with massive corporate power, private power that was unprecedented and didn't exist at all back in the time of Shays Rebellion, which was Western Massachusetts, 1786. These were farmers who were rebelling against uh, the extraordinary demands made upon them by merchants and the ruling elite, that they had to pay their taxes in scarce, precious metal, which right. hardly few of them could, could uh, acquire in, a, in the context of a depression, uh, and where most of that precious metal was being spent uh, on imports and uh, to basically pay off the wartime debts uh, they wanted paper currency and an expansion of the money supply, and that's what's similar in a way to some of the issues that the populace dealt with much later, uh, a, a artificial contraction of the money supply to make it scarce, mm. to make more valuable uh, the bonds and the debt that is paid off in gold-backed currency. Um, and the Shays Rebellion was the folk, people who said, we don't have that, uh, and we we are being forced into foreclosure. We're losing our property because we're being sued on the basis of unpaid taxes that we simply can't afford to pay off these bonds. The difference is, I would say, mm -hmm. for that and also the Whiskey Rebellion, which was some years later in western Pennsylvania, farmers uh, and folks re resisting the payment of an excise tax on the production of whiskey, again, to pay off the wartime debts of the Revolutionary War, uh, the difference is that the populace uh, would not have endorsed the use of, of violence uh, to, to make their way. They favored the ballot, not bullets. Um, and so they were much more of a, uh, in, embedded in the ongoing, continuing democratic process that was still not established, really, in the 1780s and 1790s. This is a period when they're debating uh, the Articles of Confederation and whether or not to have right. a new constitution. All of those matters are up in the air in that pre-industrial time. So it's similar in that there's a resentment of the elite mm. forcing burdens upon poor farmers, but it's quite different in terms of the context and in terms of the methods. Uh, there was armed struggle in the case of Shays' Rebellion yeah. and the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, and the populace would not have endorsed that. Thank you for that. I always appreciate history lessons, uh, especially uh, you know when it's when it's important stuff like this, like what is populism, and I, I'm definitely going to get to. I mean, stick with the gold uh, standard as something to talk about. But before that, the People's Party formed in after the Greenback Party of the 1870s, and there's some relation uh, between the the People's Party, the Populist Party, and the Greenback Party. What what were some of their positions? The Greenback Party. Well, the common thread uh, with the populace was the issue of the quote-unquote money question. And the money question dominated American politics uh, from the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. And uh, what they had in common with the populace was a resentment of the elite's devotion to and fetish for uh, the gold standard. And by the gold standard, what we mean is that uh, currency— paper currency had to be tethered to a reserve of gold. Mm -hmm. In other words, private banks would issue their own currency. It was not issued by the government, except during the Civil War, 
but generally it was privately private issue currency that had to be backed by gold and gold is scarce and that means that so was the paper currency that had to be linked to that reserve necessary legal reserve of gold and so that meant if money is scarce well the cost of it goes up supply and demand that meant interest rates were higher artificially so and what the Greenback Party said was, well, we should do what the government had to do during the Civil War. That is, issue Greenback. That is, currency that was not backed by gold, but backed by the integrity and capacity of the overall economy. In other words, what we take for granted today, yes. uh, a currency that is not backed by gold, but backed by the, the, the economy of the United States and its capacity to meet its obligations, uh, and that was what the Greenback Party was arguing for, an expansion of the money supply so that uh, debt-burdened farmers and tradespeople as well could acquire money at a reasonable rate of interest, not the extraordinarily right. high interest costs that were forced on them by l limiting the money supply to a precious metal that was scarce. That's what the bankers wanted. They wanted higher interest rates. They wanted their loans paid back in gold-backed uh, dollars. They did not want to free farmers and tradespeople from the burdens of extraordinarily high interest based on the gold standard. Fascinating. I, I forget who it was that said that the past isn't even the past. I mean, this is stuff that's still going on. I mean, the good name of the United States uh, and the high interest rates, whew, boy, that affects us all every day in our lives. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about populism no it's not what you think it is it's about democracy like the government actually serving the interests of regular people and not being uh, beholden solely to the super rich our guest today is steve babson who is uh, a labor educator union activist and history phd and we're talking about uh, an article he's written on the history news network refresher on populism's history well i didn't know the recording capabilities existed in 1896. But William Jennings Bryan had his famous Cross of Gold speech. Very few people, pretty much everybody's heard of the Cross of Gold speech, but nobody know, knows what the heck it was. But somehow, I don't know how, uh, I have a clip of it, and I'm going to play it uh, right now. Oops. If they dare to come out in the open field, and defend the gold standards of good things, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. That was really William Jennings Bryan from 1896, and, and he did run for president. I believe he was actually, I'm not certain of this, I believe he was the Democratic nominee uh, in 1896. He did not become president. But uh, so what was he saying there about, you know, you, you cannot crucify mankind on a cross of gold. What what did he, you, you did talk about that a little bit. What did that say about the mood of the nation and why other politicians might have wanted to pay attention to that? 
Well, it's an important turning point in American history because up until 1896, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the two major parties, were at the national level devoted to this idea of the gold standard, which was favored by bankers who wanted a, a limited money supply to keep interest rates high and to guarantee that debts were paid back in gold-backed currency. They had this right. fetish about gold, that it was the only uh, repository of eternal value. It was the God-given basis for any sound monetary system. Uh, and what 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 Brian was saying was that it was time to actually step away from this this fetish and, and expand the money supply by adding silver. Uh -huh. uh, now, that meant he was not going as far as the greenbackers. They wanted to expand the money supply with currency, paper currency, backed solely by the power of the government and, it's, it's, and a sound economy. But nevertheless, it was an important shift in the Democratic Party because for the first time, the party was stepping away from uh, a policy favored by the banks. And Brian was also calling for regulation of the railroads. Uh, he was also calling for a graduated income tax on mm. the rich. Mm. Uh, he was also saying no court injunctions to break strikes. The Pullman strike had just been broken uh, by the issuance of a federal court injunction against the American Railway Union. So, so in a way, uh, Brian was what a lot of people at the time called him a popocrat. Yeah. I mean, he was the Democratic Party nominee, but he was adopting selectively and in a pretty limited way from the far more ambitious program of the populace. But it's nevertheless a turning point in American history. For the first time, the Democratic Party identifies itself with the notion that the government had to step in to counter the extraordinary concentration of private power represented by these new corporate uh, pow powers in the land. Yes, and it caught on with with a lot of people. He ran for president in 1896, and I believe in 1900 and 1904, and eventually, skipping ahead, uh, when Woodrow Wilson uh, became president, before he started the First World War, uh, he recognized uh, the power, the political power, the popular power of William Jennings Bryan. And as smart political leaders know, uh, it's important oftentimes to include former opponents in their administration. Uh, Lincoln certainly did that with what Doris Kearns Goodwin called his team of rivals, people who had run against him, uh, he brought into his administration. And Wilson appointed the former presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryant, Secretary of State. Not a small job uh, in 1913. And he served as Secretary of State until his resignation on June 9th, 1915. That was before the U.S. actually got into that war. Uh, and this is a little bit aside from you know what populism is but but why why did he resign and you know i i wonder about and i do want to talk about foreign policy uh, and uh the idea of populism uh, he resigned basically because uh president wilson became more and more devoted to a belligerent response to the German submarine campaign, uh, which was beginning to take a heavy toll of neutral shipping. At that time, World War I was already raging in Europe, right. but the United States uh, was still nominally neutral, even though it was supplying uh, England with substantial amounts of war material. Yes. And, 
And Brian wanted the U.S. to stay out of that war. He said we had no business uh, involving ourselves in what was basically an imperial struggle mm -hmm. being carried out by the imperial powers of Europe. And uh, for a time, Wilson was uh, devoted to the same approach. But uh, eventually, as Germany began to expand its sinking of uh, neutral shipping, uh, most famously the Lusitania, which right. was a major ocean liner that was torpedoed and sank with an enormous loss of life, including some Americans. Uh, that's when uh, Brian said, I, I cannot, uh, you know, work on behalf of that kind of foreign policy. We should remain out of the war. And that's why he, he resigned. Well, good for him, I must say. And uh, it was, he was not wrong. It was an, a, a, a war between imperial powers. That's, I mean, it's just, it was. And at, up until 1917, we were not an imperial power. And again, we'll get into uh, foreign policy later on. But back to the 19th century, you know, if you picture the United States, I don't know what the population was, but a heck of a lot smaller than it is now. Uh, agricultural workers made up a huge percentage of the American economy. And you write that farmers were routinely abused in the 19th century. Can you say, say more what you mean? Give us some examples. Sure. Um, and again, uh, your point that this represented a very different world from what we're accustomed to. Back in 1890, according to the U.S. Census, 43% uh, of the workforce were farmers or agricultural laborers. So without a doubt, the largest single occupational group in the country uh, and growing, by the way, still in those years. Uh, cities are growing as well and actually a little faster, but the farm population was growing as well. And what they resented was a context in which the, their crops on a global market were falling in price year by year by year. Uh, so that, in fact, it was harder and harder to pay the fixed costs of the high interest that was caused by the gold standard. Uh, if money is scarce, interest rates are up. And if you have to borrow money, as farmers do, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're in a, a real bind here. And the price of both wheat and cotton are falling dramatically, largely because of foreign competition, which is growing in these years as well. In the case of wheat, it was actually the Ukraine uh, that was yeah. uh, dumping a lot of wheat on global markets. And in the case of cotton, it was Egypt and India, uh, both controlled by the British Empire, mm. uh, where peasants who are living on the edge of famine are producing uh, cotton that is driving down the price dramatically um, across the board. Prices are falling in general during this period because the, the economy is, is growing, but the money supply is not sufficient to actually match the needed demand to keep prices buoyant and rising. So everything's falling in price, but farm prices are falling much faster uh, and relative to the cost of production. The cost of McCormick reapers is falling, but not nearly as much as the, the crops that are being harvested by those machines. And so debt is becoming a huge problem for farmers, and especially in the South, where there was a really pernicious form uh, debt peonage, as it's called, uh, based on what's called the crop lien. Mm. And in that case, in the South, devastated by the Civil War, cash starved, hardly any banks, very little money available, people living really in a barter economy often enough. And in order to actually acquire the necessary seeds and implements and tools uh, to actually plant the crop, they had to borrow money. 
Now, if they're borrowing money from the local merchant, who's, by the way, also on the hook to the town wholesalers, but the local the local furnishing man, as he was called, would then sell those goods, seeds, uh, fertilizer, tools, and so on, to that, that cotton farmer at an extraordinarily high rate because there's not a lot of competition in these rural areas. And so the furnishing man would be basically able to demand an interest rate. Now catch this, the interest rate on the loans to these cotton farmers was often 50 to 100 to 130%, Mm. 130%. And that meant the crop lien was what the furnishing man, the merchant, often the landlord, uh, would demand uh, as protection for that loan. In other words, at at harvest, it was not the farmer who sold the cotton, it was the furnishing man who had legal control of it, sold it, and then announced that actually the money did not match uh, his his old balance. And so he would have to renew the crop lien. And it was basically a form of slavery, economic slavery yes. that applied to white and black farmers. Farmer, black farmers even more beleaguered because they're sharecroppers. Uh, they have to give up half their crop anyway as payment of rent. Mm. Uh, and so... The really beleaguered and extraordinarily oppressed group in the South, in the West, uh, after eight, late 1880s, uh, there's a collapse of the credit market and interest rates there for non-real estate loans go up to 40 percent, 40 percent. Imagine that. And, and keep in mind, again, that the price of their crops that they're selling is falling. So their fixed cost of debt is, remains very high. The, their crops are falling in, in value. Meanwhile, the, the railroads are often conspiring uh, to avoid competition and collectively raising their freight rates. So they're paying more and more uh, in the way of freight costs. Sometimes, of course, those, those conspiracies would collapse. And for a time, there might be lower freight rates. So there's this huge fluctuation in freight rates. Taxes are going up. Uh, the rent being charged by uh, landlords is is also fixed and rising. So for all these reasons, farmers, especially after 1893, when the economy slump, uh, slides into a profound depression, 20% unemployment. So here people are losing jobs. They're losing income. The price of their products are falling. They're paying extraordinarily high and artificially high uh, interest on their debt that they're burdened with again farmers by the way they don't make money most of the year with their growing wheat or cotton the only time they get money is when at the harvest they have to borrow these farmers yes. uh, commodity farmers are much more dependent on debt mm. and you, i can't imagine why these people would be angry uh, gosh <laughs> right absolutely am- right. amazing that the difficulties and and who the government worked for, and you mentioned the railroads, and you know I, I hadn't even uh, thought about that actually. You know the way they located the railroads, they were building railroads at the time. The the collusion between uh, the railroads and I don't know the power that they had to to locate where the lines went. Uh, whew, you know it wasn't exactly democratic, and uh, you know you can imagine people getting angry about that with the banks charging those unbelievable interest rates. Ah. Uh, just incredible. It wasn't the banks. It was the furnishing man. The furnishing, the furnishing man. man right. and the mortgage companies. Oof. Banks were charging high interest, but it was really the, the subsidiary uh, lenders who were, were screwing people. Wow. Yeah, why would they get angry? 
Uh, and the, what today, you know, we have the Republican and Democratic Party. They're very different from what they used to be. The Republican Party only came about through the election of President uh, Lincoln. And, of course, the South didn't even get a chance. They didn't vote. He wasn't on the, It was just the North that voted for him and made him president. Um, what did the two parties have in common back then that created space for the rise of populism? Well, actually, that's a, that's a fascinating question because it turns out that both of them, it was a, a bipartisan commitment, mm -hmm. first of all, to the gold standard, but second of all, also to this idea of small government, that the government should be kept as small as possible and just basically uh, responsible for military affairs, defense of our uh, borders, uh, and regulation of foreign trade. Uh, and obviously foreign policy, but otherwise a very small government uh, needn't be large at all. And that was a, a that goes back in American history, really, to the American Revolution, when people rebelled against the obviously overbearing power of a state run by a monarchy. But that that ideology of small government is what's common to both of these parties. And uh. what what that meant is the, the populists are the first to say, the first to say that no. We don't want a smaller government. We want a government that's strong enough to represent the people and counter the power of these private corporations, particularly these railroad corporations uh, that were amassing enormous amounts of profit. And the oligarchs who own them, who are mismanaging these railroads because they're basically plundering them mm. on behalf of augmenting their own power and prestige and wealth. And so the idea was that the Democrats and the Republicans, if they have this bipartisan commitment to the gold standard and to small government, that's the vacuum in which the populists begin to argue for, no, we need a strong enough government to create a social safety net and protection for the common people. That's very different from uh, what the uh, War of Independence was about. Then it was, you know, serving the uh, the wealthy people and uh, just, uh, you know, we wanted our share of the loot here. And uh, but it wasn't about equality and justice. Not not quite yet. Not till Lincoln came along. What and and it's for those who may have just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about real democracy, economic democracy. Ooh, what a concept! Populism, not the bull populism of, uh, of Trump that we see today, but actual populism. Our guest today is uh, Steve Babson, who's uh, written an article in History News Network called uh, Refresher on Populism's History That We Need. And he's got a new book out, uh, Forgotten Populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. And today we have, you know, the political parties, at least in theory, don't you know, just choose their candidate uh, as with, you know, out of the public limelight, there's the primary system. What was it about the mechanics of electing a president and a presidential nominee that gave virtually no prospect for internal reform within the party system that really shut out any chance of the people's opinions being able to uh, have a say on, on the party nominee? Yeah, that, that was also a common uh, aspect of both the Republican and Democratic yeah. parties was that they were basically ruled by a, a small ring of, of powerful people. Uh, and, you know, Jay Gould, who was one of the wealthiest men of the time, uh, famously said, you know, in a Republican district, I'm a Republican. In a Democratic district, <laughs> I'm a Democrat. 
Uh, it was a bipartisan commitment to the rich. Uh, and without a primary system, that meant when they, for a selection of presidential candidates, that didn't exist. So at the time when the party was defining itself in terms of its national policies and its candidates for president, uh, it was a closed system run by a tightly controlled convention in which incumbent leaders would prosper and protect their position. And there was very little room for outsiders to break into that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's still the case. And uh, we remember 2016 when uh, there was a very, very popular populist candidate, Bernie Sanders, whom, of course, I supported and I was a delegate for back then. But the party insiders, boy, they didn't want that to happen. And look what happened, of course. Um, you, you say that the economic and political goals of these populists were as broad as their membership. What the populists drew on a number of varied segments of the population for support. Uh, tell us about uh, who were who some of the varied segments of the population that, that supported. It wasn't just farmers. Uh, tell us about that, please. No, uh, no it was actually uh, a group that included uh, folks who, workers who were also largely rural as well, and that means mm -hmm. uh, coal miners, hard rock miners, uh, railroad workers, the section hands who were out there building the rails and maintaining them. And so the populace could rely on and uh, base their, their power on uh, this commitment to the Knights of Labor and a, uh, a, a really a, a labor movement that's in embryo, that's trying to establish uh, its place in the economy, uh, particularly railroad workers and coal miners. Um, but also women suffragists. Uh, this, of uh, course, is an era in which uh, women were denied the right to vote yes. uh, and also burdened with a whole range of legal uh, uh, secondary, cis, uh, secondary status. And uh, women are, many of them, drawn to the populist party in a way which really wasn't true of the Republicans and the Democrats. They, they largely did not permit uh, or welcome women's involvement at the local level. The populace, in contrast, had a broad base of support from women, uh, many of them suffragists, but all of them looking for an improvement in their family situation, whether they were farmers or railroad workers or coal miners, uh, black sharecroppers, uh, many of them increasingly uh, uh, seeing the Republican Party as no longer the party of Abraham Lincoln. Mm. By the 1890s, the, one of the dominant caucuses within the Republican Party was called the Lily Whites. And yeah. what that meant was they were now devoted to the idea that in the South, they should no longer be nominating black candidates to run even in majority black counties and uh, local townships. Uh, and so they were abandoning uh, their historic commitment to uh, emancipation and the rights of, of black voters. Uh, and so in that context, uh, a lot of black folks are drawn to the populist party when it opens its ranks uh, to black members, including on their executive committees. Their state executive committees in mm. Texas and Louisiana and Georgia had black members. Wow. Now, this is this is not true <laughs> for the Democratic Party, the dominant one party uh, ruling authoritarian oh, yeah. power in the South. Uh, and so uh, they're drawing for from blacks. Uh, women, suffragists, labor, uh, struggling for their rights as well. So it's a it's a big tent. It's a very big tent with a lot of sometimes antagonistic views within it. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and also rural ministers and teachers uh, who could see that uh, the Populist Party was representing uh, their, their, their best hope for a revitalization of their communities in rural America. Wow, fascinating. And I think it's interesting how, you know, a lot of what you're saying is kind of applicable today. I think listeners may be surprised how applicable many of the goals of the populists remain today, perhaps more than ever. And, and you, I mean, you talk about freezing out the uh, uh, peop, black people, people of color. That's the Republican Party today, for sure. But, but what else? Uh, how, what other goals of the populace remain applicable today, do you think, Steve? Well, one of the things they fought for was voting rights for African-Americans and women. <laughs> that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. And particularly when you talk about Trump, it's, it's voter suppression. What the populace represented was a commitment to expanding democratic rights mm. uh, and protecting uh, voting rights for African-Americans and women. They didn't do it adequately. If, from the standpoint of our 2023, we look back and what they were proposing was for their time revolutionary, but it falls short of what we would see as uh, necessary in today's terms. But, you know, that's that's a historical if we impose our perspective exactly. back on the 1890s. In the 1890s, the populists were regarded as a revolutionary force, uh, even though limited in terms of what they saw as important for voting rights for African-Americans and women. It was considered revolutionary, and they paid a high price in the South, where many of them were simply assassinated. Uh, imprisoned, boycotted, shunned, uh, and they paid a real price for that. But postal savings banks, they wanted to replace the privately owned national banking system with a postal savings bank that would uh, democratize and decentralize credit, uh, provide low-cost 2% loans to the population across the board, not just in the city-based banks, particularly in New York, but across the board, uh, postal savings banks. They wanted public ownership of the railroads. The railroads were extraordinarily mismanaged at that time. Almost any railroad you can pick, at some point it's in bankruptcy. Poorly managed with uh, uh, executives who are basically plundering the railroad. And, and the historiographical uh, evidence here is overwhelming. Extraordinarily mismanaged resources, and yet they had been built with public property. Uh, the, the railroads are subsidized by 170 million acres of free land given to them out of Federal Reserve, the size of Texas, Jeez. in effect, gifted oh. to the railroads, along with uh, cash uh, rewards for every mile built, along with tax exemptions, along with public financing of their uh, bonded debt. And so the populace said, listen, these railroads were built with public money. But they're now being mismanaged on behalf of the extraordinary wealth of an elite, Jay Gould, William Vanderbilt, and others. And it's time for us to take back uh, the railroads, which we initially favored uh, and want to see actually succeed. But they're not going to do so under private uh, management. Uh, you know, and the, the rest, they wanted a government safety net. You all, you've probably heard of Coxey's Army. Maybe some of you have. Oh, Coxey's yes. Army. Do tell. Remind uh, us, please. Well, he was a populist. He was a populist, and uh, that was a, a march on Washington, the first mass march on Washington, a peaceful march, I want to stress, uh, calling for a government program in the context of a massive economic uh, depression, 20% unemployment, mm -hmm. with no social safety net at the time. There was no unemployment insurance. Right. There was no social security. There was nothing. And so people are starving. 
People are starving. And Coxie and his populist supporters march on Washington and say, let's build some roads. The roads stink. <laughs> the roads are a mess. Let's build roads and provide jobs for unemployed people. They wanted regulation of corporations. Uh, they wanted a graduated income tax. They wanted labor rights, uh, no court injunctions to break strikes. Uh, they wanted a whole range of initiatives that would expand democracy, including, by the way, the election of U.S. senators by voters, mm -hmm. not by legislators. And a lot of folks aren't aware of this, but back then, the Senate was actually filled with people who had not won a popular election, but had simply lobbied for and often okay. paid for state legislators to send them uh, to the U.S. Senate. So. There's a whole range of Democratic reforms that they favored, a lot of which still look good to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly the uh, the idea of, of the U.S. Senate uh, being it, it was one of the reasons it was created, I understand, was to protect the interests of the wealthy against too much democracy, that they were like, you know, the House of Lords that, oh, not to worry, you know, the House could do its thing, but uh, the Senate would be, you know, there to protect the wealthy classes. And what you're talking about, I mean, that's why I supported uh, uh, Fred Harris in 1976, why I supported, why so many people, it, this is something that people still care about these days. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't been answered. But some politicians recognize that there's some power there that they need to deal with and try to absorb some of that. For the most obvious example, Franklin Roosevelt. He was certainly not a populist. He was called a traitor to his class, which sounded good to me. He created jobs programs. He built an infrastructure, which is what you were just talking about, Steve. His 1936 campaign faced the prospect of a populist challenger in Huey Long from Louisiana. And that it, it probably did affect his positions. Uh, I, I, I want to play a clip from, from Huey Long. Uh, he was uh, uh, governor of, of uh, Louisiana. He took on Standard Oil and funded education, infrastructure, and energy programs. Uh, he taxed the rich. And across the country, he had something called the Share the Wealth Clubs. And let's, let's hear a sample. This is a little bit long, but uh, this is uh, Huey Long, uh, his famous Share the Wealth speech from 1935. According to the tables which we have assembled, it is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America. And that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat? The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. <laughs> going to feed the bounds of the people. What's Morgan and Baruch and Rockefeller and Mellon going to do with all that grub? They can't eat it. They can't wear the clothes. They can't live in the house. Give them a yacht. Give them a pilot. Send them to Reno and give them a new wife when they want it. That's what they want. <laughs> 
But when they've got everything on the God's living earth that they can eat and they can wear and they can live in, and all that their children can live in and wear and eat and all their children's children can use, then we got to call Mr. Morgan and Mr. Mellon and Mr. Rockefeller back and say, come back here. Put that stuff back on this table here that you took away from here that you don't need. Leave something else for the American people to consume. And that's the problem. We're not going to destroy the Gulf Refining Company. We're not going to destroy the Standard Oil Company. But we're going to say that the limit of any one man's stock ownership in the Standard Oil Company is from three to five million dollars to that individual, and that the balance of the people of America own the balance of what the Standard Oil Company's worth. Mm. All right. He goes on. Then, we start from the bottom that the 25 or more million American families shall have a homestead, a home, and the comforts of a home, including an automobile and a radio, the things it takes in that house to live on. We say to America, 125 million, none shall be too big, None shall be too poor. None shall work too much. None shall be idle. No luxurious mansions empty. None walking the streets. None impoverished. None in pestilence. None in want. But in the land blessed by the smile of the Creator, with everything to be consumed, to be eaten, to be worn, that America will become a land, sharing the fruits of the land, not for the favored few, not to satisfy greed, but that all may live in a land in which the Lord has provided an abundance sufficient for the luxury and convenience of the people in general. I think. Yeah, that was a little long, but my goodness, you know, People have said uh, that was Huey Long from 1935. Uh, he hadn't yet been running for president. There was a possibility he was going to run for president. Of course, he was uh, shot and uh, eventually died from his wounds. It's unclear if there was an incompetent doctor or whatever. But anyway, uh, the f people have said, oh, Bernie Sanders, too far left, too far left. Here is, I mean, here's this guy, Huey Long, from the South, obviously, who appealed to uh, real farmers, uh, rural people uh, that, uh, and here in 2016, you know, was Hillary Clinton going to, obviously, just openly going to the super rich people to, to raise money and turning her back on this segment of the population? Well, what did you expect? So, uh, Steve, you listened to that, and w how much of that do you think is that, sentiment still applicable today and and could still be uh popular i mean public ownership of, of utilities stuff like that your thoughts well i think uh you know it depends on how it's framed but i certainly uh find it appealing um yeah. and i think you know uh huey long's economic program is worth taking a second look at there's some people who argue that it was not uh practically speaking likely to be uh implemented and therefore he was really 
positioning himself for running for president in 1936. But still, he was raising questions about uh, the unequal uh, power and income and wealth uh, that was characteristic of the U.S. then and now, by the way. And in fact, I would argue it's now even more the case, uh, particularly when uh, was recently established that uh, three men alone, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates and uh, Bezos, uh, Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon, those mm-hmm. three men have the uh, equivalent wealth of 160 million Americans. Mm-hmm. That's half the U.S. population. Three men have the same amount of wealth. And so uh, that could be redistributed in all kinds of ways that would suit actually a stronger America with a, a much more prosperous base in terms of working people uh, across the board if we were to invest that money. Uh, in the kinds of safety net programs and the kind of investments and the kind of industrial policy that would mean uh, a stronger economy down the road. We should be building our own semiconductors, and that should have happened a long Mm. time ago. Mm. Uh, We should be producing our own baby formula. Uh, We should nationalize the railroads, which is what they were calling for the populace back in the 1890s. I look at the railroad system again today, and what do we have? East Palatine and the kinds of disasters that come from companies that are are tripling their profits in the last decade uh, and mismanaging a railroad uh, that really should be run on the basis of public need and the public good, not on what maximizes uh, the return on investment for oligarchs, uh, the likes of Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, if you added him. uh, Those four have more wealth than half the U.S. population. And so... I think what, what Long was proposing is, is worth a second look. I think, on the other hand, we also have to be careful because Long was a, was a demagogue yes. and a, an authoritarian. Um, and a lot of his practice uh, in, in Louisiana uh, would not have been appealing to populists who really did revere the democratic process. And I don't think Long did. Uh, he was a bullying uh, and basically involved in kickbacks and fraud uh, and sometimes violence against his political opponents. And so he, there's a very unappealing side to him in that regard. And I don't think the populace would have supported that kind of behavior. Oh, certainly. No question about it. And, he, and yeah, there's, there's a lot to criticize about him for sure. And the idea that utilities that are really public utilities should perhaps, what a concept, be owned and controlled, at least in part, by the public. If, they, if they're public utilities regulate them as public utilities. And we're not seeing that now. And there's a lot of resistance to that. The the powers that be, the, the four guys you spoke about, uh, would would resist that. I mean, the internet, it doesn't, don't, I mean, like pretty much everybody, our economy depends on the internet now. You know, shouldn't it serve yeah. the, the, the interests of the entire nation? So many things like that. I mean, we have uh, publicly owned water these days, publicly owned electricity. In fact, and I believe in North Dakota, there's a a state-owned bank that can provide lower interest rates. This stuff has appeal that, you know, we forget about. This is the real populism. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohn here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking for a few minutes more with Steve Babson, who's written an article about uh, uh, a refresher course on the history of populism. Got a new book out, Forgotten Populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. And today, when you, you know, as I said in the very beginning, when, when, when people hear the word populist, they think of the far right. 
That's what happens these days. And there have been faux populist leaders who have used rhetoric that stirs up anger, and certainly Huey Long did that as well. Uh, they, these, these false populists push the distrust of experts. Uh, they promote nationalism, which is really dangerous, and demonize outsiders. There was George C. Wallace, Trump, and others around the world. They mocked the notion of caring about others when they saw mask wearing as oppressive as they, at the same time, oppress people of color and want to put up a wall against refugees, which this country was built on. They oppress women, uh, people, uh, LGBTQ people. They attack the capital. How would the populace, the genuine populace of the 1890s, seen this false populism today, Trumpism? Oh, they would have detested Trump. I mean... Uh... He, he stands for everything that the populists right. were mobilizing against. I mean, here's an oligarch um, among uh, the same breed uh, that we were talking about earlier, um, but also a demagogue and an authoritarian uh, who seeks to undermine voting rights uh, yes. and restrict democracy uh, and do so on behalf of uh, his pals in the billionaire club. Uh, so he cuts taxes on the mega rich. He uh, eliminates a lot of regulation of corporations, uh, and he emboldens a right wing who uh, seek to overturn a legitimate election. Uh, there's nothing in any of that that the populace would have endorsed. It's amazing how he can somehow grab the label populism, and and it, it tends to be what people think of when they, when they think of populism. And I did not want to forget foreign policy. Right now, our foreign policy is made by a few. And it is, you know, oftentimes, I mean, weapons manufacturers get a huge contracts and they have tremendous power in, in Washington over our tax dollars. What if, dare I say, foreign policy depended on democratic participation? What about that concept? Uh, yeah, that would make a difference. And uh, certainly what the populists were about, um, you know, the United States is becoming an imperial power uh, in the 1890s with the Spanish-American War. Mm. And the populists initially endorsed uh, the U.S. going to war against the Spanish uh, colonial power uh, that was oppressing uh, peasants in Cuba and yes. the Philippines and Puerto Rico. But they then turned 180 degrees in the opposite direction after the war was won and, in, and independence was a possibility. The right wing in America wanted to annex all of these as our as yeah. our colony, the basis for our colonial system. And the populace uh, really opposed that. They said uh, this is an imperial policy and that's not what we're about. What we were about was helping people find their own liberty and their own liberation and independence. We were not about annexing the Philippines, for example, which the U.S. proceeded to do mm -hmm. at an enormous cost uh, to the Filipino people. Uh, 15,000 of their uh, fighters were killed and somewhere between a quarter and a quarter million and a million died uh, in the uh, concentration camps that the U.S. military built across uh, the Philippines, 1901, 1903, 1904. Uh, so this was a bad moment uh, for U.S. foreign policy, and it's unfortunately something we've replicated in the years since. 
Yes, and and you know, if people had to vote on do we go to war in Vietnam, uh, do, or they had to vote on uh, do we go to war in uh, the Great War, the First World War, boy, things would have turned out really differently. And uh, I I kind of think it would have been a lot better. Where do you think? Well, just leave it on this. Do you, is populism today? What what? Where do you think it stands? And what are your feelings about uh, the appeal of it? Well, I think you know. Again, if it's if it's presented in a way that uh, you know addresses the real needs of people, I think uh, a lot of these issues uh, appeal to folks who, in years past, might have been scared off by the notion. Well, this is a kind of socialism, and uh, this is anti-capitalist. Uh, what the populists argued was: if you want capitalism to thrive. You have to actually have public control of the infrastructure that provides opportunity for farmers and tradespeople. That means the railroads, the utilities, uh, and the infrastructure that should be uh, controlled by the government on behalf of maximizing people's access uh, to this economy. And then in, in the current case, that means uh, a lot of these uh, digital empires have to be addressed as well. Uh, yes. Google and Twitter and Amazon and the rest of them. Um, but I think, you know, at this point, Bernie Sanders represents, for me personally, yes. uh, in the same way Fred Harris for you uh, personally, Bernie Sanders represents the real potential for reviving that kind of approach. And I think he does a great job. Uh, and uh, that's why I canvassed for him uh, in 2016 and 2020. I love him too. What can I say? And I think he would have, well, we won't get into the 2016 election here. Not enough time for that. But it's it's an interesting part of American history that has largely been erased. Uh, the word populist has been terribly abused. Uh, as and it's t today when people hear the word, it's not. It's really the antithesis of real populism. Populism means uh, you know the people, the government serving us an actual democracy, more democracy, not less. I've always been a uh, believer in that. Hey, thank you so much for being with us, Steve Babson, and hopefully uh, we can uh, learn from this and and uh, adopt some of these. Uh, important concepts into our future. We are not powerless. People have some power and we can make a difference and, and just not give up. Thank you so much for being with us today, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Democracy is coming to the USA. Through a hole in the air From those nights in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the field That this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder From the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming if you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to 
also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.